Live from Tel Aviv, two nice Jewish boys. This podcast is made in cooperation with the Jewish Journal, www.jewishjournal.com. The Middle East isn't the friendliest neighborhood to grow up in, especially for Israel. From the cold peace it shares with both Egypt and Jordan to the persistent state of war it holds with Iraq and Iran, Israel is hard-pressed to find a friend in its corner of the world. The USA is often seen as Israel's big brother, its protector, its ever-loyal ally. But the United States lies thousands upon thousands of miles away geographically and light-years culturally. So how does a country like Israel fit in in its hometown? What's its role here in the Middle East? How does a young nation forge relationships in such harsh climate? Here to help us understand the intricacies and intrigues of the Middle East is Barak Ravid. Barak is the chief diplomatic correspondent for Channel 10 News here in Israel. Before that, he served as the diplomatic correspondent at Haaretz for a decade, covering the prime minister's office, the foreign ministry, and the ministry of defense, dealing with issues such as U.S.-Israel relations, EU-Israel relations, and the peace process. Barak Ravid joins us today to talk about Israel's place in the Middle East. Subscribe to Two Nice Jewish Boys on iTunes. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate us. Hi, Barak. Hi, guys. Hello. Good to be here. Thanks Thank for Thank you coming. for joining us. How are you? Well, not bad, not bad. Considering that it's early in the morning. <laughs> well, it's not that early in the morning. Uh, I've when never you have, seen. When, when you have kids, it's, uh, it's practically noon now. <laughs> <laughs> this is the earliest hour I've ever seen. So, <laughs> so let's start with uh, a little unusual of a question. But who, who's our biggest friend in the Middle East? Our biggest friend in the Middle East? That's, wow, that's a good question. If at all. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you um, a surprising answer. I think that our biggest friends in the Middle East are the Palestinians. Oh. Yeah, yeah, you didn't see that Not coming, right? No. Uh, if, you lo- if you look at the, um, um, at the amount of cooperation, of trade, of um, uh, Palestinians working in Israel... This is uh, um, much more than any other country in the Middle East. Um, um, the Israeli and the Palestinian economy are intertwined. Uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of Palestinians come to Israel to work um, every day. Um, so uh, regardless, you know, it's hard to say regardless, but regardless of the uh, state of conflict between the two peoples, uh, there's also a very, very big and profound um, cooperation between both peoples, much more than there is with any other uh, Arab country in the region. Just think how many Palestinians speak Hebrew, okay? And then mm-hmm. go to any other country in the Middle East and check how many people speak Hebrew. <laughs> Just check how many Palestinians uh, know Israeli culture uh, and then go to any other country in the Middle East uh, and check check this out or you know and I give more and more uh, examples uh, look how many uh, Palestinians are citizens of Israel there are almost 1.5 million Palestinians 20% of, of Israel 20% of the population yeah. um, uh, so I think it, it's ironically even though this is the main and biggest conflict Israel is in for 100 years now mm-hmm. um, much more than the conflict we have with, I don't know, the UAE or Saudi Arabia or Morocco, okay? But uh, on the other hand, at the same time, we have very close uh, relations. We are, are, 
are both people are both peoples you know we live together you know yeah. there's this Facebook page called um, the Khaldi twins they are two twins in Gaza and they are doing this video sometimes political and annoying but sometimes not and they showed everyday life in Gaza and uh, I was amazed to see although it makes sense that when they go to the market you see that in Gaza the currency is shekels yeah of course, of course. <laughs> I mean in Gaza the people... currency in shekels and in the West Bank yeah. this is why the, the economies are intertwined There's, there are no two sets of economies uh... isn't it mind blowing though that in Gaza They're, they they're handing Natan Alterman back and forth. Yeah, yeah it's, <laughs> it's mind-blowing. Uh, yeah, you know what's more mind-blowing? What's mind-blowing is that if you want to buy um, a shawarma in Tel Aviv, it will cost you 40 shekels. If you want to buy a shawarma in Gaza, it will cost you four shekels. You know okay. it from experience? Yeah, I know it from experience. That's at least this is how it was in 2007. So maybe the gap is even bigger today because it was 10 years ago. That was the time. last time you... Yeah, because after that, after June 2007, Israelis were not allowed into Gaza. But, uh, you know, again, this is, I think, when you look at the Middle East today, Israel's most important relationship, okay, is with the Palestinians. Also because how- of the shawarma? because yes because of the shawarma that's 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 the thing it's it's symbolic why because when you look at um, uh, the price of shawarma in Gaza and the price of shawarma in Tel Aviv shows you how what we need to fix here okay because uh, okay. Um, you know as long as this is the gap okay we were, we are going to continue to have a problem Okay, because part of the problem, part of it, it's not all of it, but part of it is the economy. Mm. When, when this is the gap in the standard of living, in the economy, in the salary you get, you get in, the, in the employment and unemployment, we're going to have a very big uh, problem. Also today with the Palestinian Authority, we have this kind of a security cooperation, right? Like if we, ha- if we know about someone we want arrested, how does it work? Can you shed some light on that? Maybe. Uh, well, there's, there's very, again, very broad uh, security coordination between Israel and the Palestinians. It's from the level of the um, chiefs of the security services, the commander of the IDF, the commander of the Shin Bet security service, the head of COGAD, the, the coordinator of the government operations in, in the West Bank. Um, so from those high levels to very low levels of... of Um, uh, platoon commanders even and then brigade commanders that coordinate on a daily basis and even you know uh, um, chiefs of police stations okay in 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 the West Bank you know Israeli uh, police station chiefs and Palestinian police station chiefs because at the end of the day they're uh, running after the same thieves uh, mm-hmm. so this is a lot of it is is obviously you know, under the carpet and a very low um, 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 profile profile but it's it's there it's there all the time because and it's a de- the, kind of a de facto piece-ish kind of an arrangement it's again this is why I this is why I say that Israel's most important relationship with the Arab world is with, with the Palestinians because you know how many Israelis Israeli lives are even though we're in a conflict okay? You know how many Israeli lives are saved every day by Palestinian security forces? 
people who end up by mistake in neighborhoods and then that's, they get you know, saved. That, that's the most simple example of people right. that, you know, um, use the GPS system in their car and it takes them by mistake to, I don't know, to the middle of, of a Palestinian <laughs> town and the Palestinian police is, take them and gives them back to the IDF. That's the most simple example. You have such things every day. But I'm, even, I, I'm talking even about... Um, you know, terrorist attacks that are prevented by Palestinian security forces. The IDF estimates that between 30 to 40 percent of terror attacks are prevented by Palestinian security forces and not by the IDF. Mm-hmm. So that's a big number. And that's so, so if that's the state of affairs, then I mean, I mean, we're in a persistent state of conflict. What's their interest in doing this? Uh, well, I think the, the main interest is because it serves them, too. Because okay. if if so? uh, because if a, a suicide bomber will uh, get out of uh, I don't know Nablus or Ramallah and reach Tel Aviv or Jer- or West Jerusalem and blow himself up and I don't know fifteen people will be murdered. I think it's it clear it's clear for the Palestinians that the next phase will be a very harsh Israeli retaliation. And so I think that it is in both in Israeli and Palestinian interest to keep the security situation calm, even though the political situation is very tense. So maybe uh, it sounds like what you're saying is maybe there is peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians, and it's just... Uh, no one told us about it's it. It's just semantics. It's just, well, I don't know, a marketing issue. No, I don't think so. There's no peace. and uh, But I think there is, in a certain sense, a sort of non-belligerence mm-hmm. uh, reality. Okay, um, because again, if you look back 15 years ago, we were in the middle of an intifada where we had a war for three or four years, a war mm-hmm. with the Palestinians. People forget that in the West Bank. Okay, we had uh, just uh, three and a half years ago, we had the war in the summer in, in Gaza, okay? mm-hmm. a war with, with um, um, 85 Israelis killed. 2,500 Palestinians killed. 40 days of rockets on Tel Aviv. 50 50 days. 50 50 days. days. Uh, So, you know, we we had that too. I'm not trying to portray a situation where everything here is is peachy. But but again, I think that security-wise, things are much better than than they used to be. And again, I think that both leaderships understand that even though there are a lot of extremists out there that would want to uh, um, um, go and and um, perform uh, uh, terror attacks on both sides. Um, the security services on both sides realize that it's in their interest to to try and keep the situation as calm as possible. So, who is the biggest threat then on us in it the Middle be, East? It might be the same answer. <laughs> um, I don't know. Threat it again. It, it depends. It's it's true because it depends. Uh, how do you define threat? Okay, an immediate and mighty enemy that is most likely to strike us. Most capable. Most capable. So look, um, Israel's security situation today. I think uh, it's it's safe to say that Israel's security situation today is the best it ever was since the founding of the country. Okay. Um, there is no, there is no conv- conventional um, a military or a state actor that has the means or the will uh, to 
you know, to launch uh, a war against Israel. There's no one in the immediate neighborhood. Okay, um, the Egyptian army today is Israel's uh, ally. The IDF and the Egyptian military work together to fight terrorism in Sinai. Jordanian army is basically the army that keeps Israel's eastern border safe. Okay, not the IDF. Uh, okay, if you if you check the number of IDF soldiers on the border with Jordan, you'll see that it's a very small number because most of the security is on the Jordanian side by Jordanian soldiers. Uh, the Syrian army that for years, for decades, was the mighty threat that the IDF was training and planning for a war with Syria for years, since 1973. Uh, it's gone. Okay, the, the civil war in Syria completely destroyed the Syrian army. Uh, Syria used to have a stockpile of tons of chemical weapons. This is gone too, which was a main threat on Israel. This is gone too. Uh, Syria used to have a very big air force. It's mostly gone too. Um, so there's no big state actor that can launch a big all-out conventional war against Israel. Okay. So this on whole idea, sorry, I just want to, this whole idea that's like uh, proliferating in the media a lot of times by the right-wing parties that, you know, ISIS is on the border or there's 100,000 rockets there's aimed this, on our cities. There's this imminent threat that, you know, there's going to be annihilation here tomorrow. You're, it's, it's non-existent. No, I'm not saying that there are no threats, but there's no threat of annihilation on Israel. Israel yeah. has no uh, military, no military existential threats today. Israel mm -hmm. is the strongest uh, uh, military superpower in the region by far in the radius of 1500 kilometers it, it can annihilate every living organism by a press of a button no other country in the region can do that and I don't see any other country in the region uh, gaining this capability in the next decade um, so I'm not saying there are no threats okay there's Hamas in Gaza that has rockets and and, you know, has 40,000 armed uh, militiamen. There's Hezbollah that has, I don't know, people every time they give 100,000, 120,000 rockets. Okay, some of them are very big and sophisticated. You and think accurate. it's an exaggerated number? No, I, I, don't, I don't think it's exaggerated. I just think that um, security is not always based on the number of munitions the other side has, okay? Because if, if this is a the situation, then, you know, Israel uh, presumably, according to uh, foreign sources, has uh, 200 uh, nuclear bombs, okay? So what's the... So you want to, to weigh that against 120,000 But obviously we're not going to... If allegedly we have such a weapon, we, we're not going to use it, whereas... Hezbollah is capable very easily, as we have seen in the past, to, and now it has Iran and Syria by its side, to launch an all a whole war on us and throw those aim these rockets and launch them upon. Because I read some very scary articles, but I just the one I remember is by Ben Kaspit for like a year ago, how uh, he describes a situation in which if Tens of, of thousands of rockets are launched at once on us. This could be, maybe it's not existential, but 
the damage it would cause us maybe maybe take years to to heal well you know if it, does, does does hezbollah have ha, does hezbollah has the capability of doing that yes it has the capability but the question is if it has the will to do that and uh, i just want to remind you what Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, said after the Leb Second Lebanon War in 2006, when he said that if he knew that this would be the result, okay, uh, on Lebanon and on, on, and on the, his organization, he would never uh, kidnap the soldiers and, and uh, take the, um, take the, the risk, take the risk of, of an all-out war with Israel, which, as, as it happened. Um, and today I think it's clear to everybody that uh, if Hezbollah will decide to use their capabilities, you know, Israel still has much, um, much more serious capabilities and uh, those capabilities will be launched against Hezbollah and against Lebanon. And I, I don't think that at the moment Hezbollah has any appetite for, uh, for such a confrontation. I just want to remind you that Hezbollah is uh, engaged in the war in Syria for five years now, more than five years. They lost thousands of soldiers. They lost thousands of soldiers. Just the other day, I saw that in the fighting in Syria, just in one day, they lost 15 people. This is... It's a small know, organization in the end of the day. And yeah, but again, for any organization, even for a big organization, even for the IDF or for the... I don't know, the U.S. military, to lose 15 people in one day, that's, that's a big deal. Yeah. Okay, that's a big deal. So I, I think that for now and for in the foreseeable future, uh, Hezbollah is going to focus on Syria, on, uh, on stabilizing the situation in Syria. And we have to remember that Hezbollah is at the end of the day a proxy of, of Iran. And... Uh, all of its decision making or at least part of its decision making is based on what people in Tehran think and what people in Beirut think so I think they have much more limitations on using their capabilities than than we might think and and and, and look at the end of the day as I said even Hezbollah if it launches all of its uh, military capabilities it will not annihilate Israel Right. Okay. It, it will not annihilate Israel. That's, and this is why I'm, and, and you know, ISIS in the last election campaign, we were told by Netanyahu that ISIS is on the border and ISIS will get to Jerusalem and all sorts <laughs> of BS. And, you know, we all see where ISIS is today. Right. Okay. So, uh, so know, if we, if we go back to the, the question, okay. So if the, there's no existential threat to Israel, no who, military, who, no military existential threat. But if you would have to still uh, identify one uh, entity or country um, that is that poses the biggest threat, even if that means the one that is closest to launching, you know, not an uh, annihilation, but the, an attack, who would that be? The Palestinians, the Iranians, no, so I, the I Syrians? Think, I think the biggest threat is not the military one. The biggest threat is to the character of Israel, to the character of the country. Mm. Because right now, Israel is a democracy, okay? And it's also, it's defined as a, a Jewish and democratic state, right? Um, and so no, no state actor or non-state actor in the region can annihilate Israel by military force. But 
there is an actor that can change the character of Israel, okay? Uh, and this is uh, obviously, you know, the, the millions of Palestinians living here uh, between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean and, and that for now want their state, a state of their own. But many of them, and more and more, say, you know what, we don't want a two-state solution, we just want our rights. Okay, and now describe me Israel and the character of the country when it's not um, uh, a twenty percent minority of of non-Jews, but uh, it doesn't even have to be the majority. But when it gets to forty percent, forty percent non-Jews, forty percent Palestinians between the the Jordan River and the Mediterranean as Israeli citizens, okay. Do you think that the character of Israel will stay the, will stay the same? I don't think so. But there's no chance the right-wing governments, or even the, the Avodah, the left-wing party government, would give citizenships to, to the Palestinians which uh, get, in which the territories, gets you, right? Which gets you to even worse case. Of a status, okay. This status quo remains for decades to come. No, it will not remain for decades. There's no status quo. Okay, status quo. You just described to us the status quo. No, but the status quo. We, I mean, we think that it's a status quo. Okay, um, there is a status quo in the sense that uh, security situation is stable. Okay, but there's no status quo in the minds of people, and if people say, "Give us our rights," and we say, "Oh, well, we can't give them the rights because then you know." Israel will not be a Jewish state anymore because we'll have 40% non-Jews and this is not a Jewish state anymore, then it means that you're saying officially that you are willing to keep between uh, the Jordan River and the Mediterranean in one uh, territorial block two sets of citizens, okay? Uh, one set of citizens with equal rights and the other set of citizens with no rights okay uh, there's a name for such a thing it's called apartheid it was tried in some countries in the world it failed you know it failed because the international community never accepted it and it failed because at the end of the day it got people uh, uh, the people with no rights decided to fight for the rights mm -hmm. okay and this is why I'm saying that the threat for the future of Israel is not a is not a military one, okay? In the next 10 years, I do not see any state actor or non-state actor that can, by military force, annihilate Israel. But I do see how in 10 years, the character of the country can change. It can, it can change in a way which will be disastrous for the, this whole notion of the Zionist project, okay? A notion of building a nation-state, a democratic nation-state for the Jewish people. And... If, if, if this happens... The values of freedom and, and, and human rights. You know, the values of, the, of our founding document, the Declaration of Independence, okay? Yeah. Um, so how do you maintain the, the Declaration of Independence? How do you maintain what's written in it, its content, its values? How do you maintain it in a situation where, on the one hand... Uh, um, you're not willing to give, you don't want to, to uh, let's say, um, give a citizenship to uh, 2.5 million Palestinians in the West Bank because then you, you, you'll stop being a, a Jewish state. And on the other hand... You don't want to give them a state because people are afraid of that, yes, basically. Yes, so, you know, we That's the biggest problem we face. Like, it seems like 
to many Israelis, it seems like two bad options. Three bad options, because I guess no one really wants to for it to stay like it is now. But people are also afraid for, for giving them a state. And people are also afraid for, for, to give them citizenship. So to many Israelis, I think all options are bad options. Well, so, you know what? You know? You know what? Uh, welcome to, to the reality, <laughs> okay? Yes. In everything in the world, in, in, in every, every you know, step of your life, you know, especially in politics, the, it's always uh, uh, the buffet is never... You never go to the buffet and say, oh, here's a great option, here's a very bad option. Oh, what, what am I going to pick? No, it's usually... You have to pick between the bad option, the very bad option, and the really, really, really shitty option. Yeah, there's never filet in the buffets, exactly. right? Yeah, but it's a buffet, so you just take them all. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, so usually, but you know what usually we do? We decide not to take everything. We decide, okay, I'll skip, I'll skip lunch, okay? <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, you postpone the decision, and you postpone it more and more and more until the, every time that the option that was bad, next time you go to the buffet, it is a very bad option option and the right. very bad option becomes a very very bad option and the very 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 bad option becomes a really 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 bad option so things are not going to get any better if we postpone decisions so and you mean you're saying cut our losses now basically uh, yes i think it's it's uh it's part of it i think we need to we need to realize that uh we need to take decisions and i'm not t- saying which ones There are some people who say, oh, we need to annex the entire West Bank and, and decide that this is Israel for now and forever. Okay, go ahead, do it. Other people say, oh, we need to give away the entire West Bank. Palestinians said, okay, but we need decisions. We need a solution. Yeah, we, again, I, it's not that we need a solution because... We need to it, try things. I, yeah, I, I'm not saying that we can get from, one, from zero to 100 in one leap. But mm-hmm. I'm saying we need to take decisions to at least start getting us to, to this direction. Yeah. Whichever direction it is. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that the direction should be two-state solution. If somebody else tells me, listen, we want to go another way and we're taking a decision, I'll, I'll so say, So maybe the okay. decision is to keep things the way they are. But so again, it is a That's sort... That's the decision you can't accept. It is a sort of decision, okay? It is a decision. Not, not, not taking a decision is also a decision. Uh, but it's a very bad one, in my opinion. So somehow discussions about Israel's place in the Middle East always whirlpool into, and maybe this feeds into the idea that the, um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is like the epicenter of, you know, it's the central strategic question in the Middle East. Um, but let's talk about a little bit about, wider you know, angle. a wider angle. Let's, let's kind of open up the, uh, the lens and, and talk about other potential friends, I guess. Um, we're seeing in the news yeah. recently, uh, a lot of talk about Saudi Arabia. Is there any chance that we'll be seeing, uh, bin Salman in Israel anytime the soon? The king or of Saudi Arabia. Is that Arabia. just wishful uh, thinking? Well, uh, or maybe we shouldn't be wishing for that at all. Well, I don't know. Um, I don't see I don't see any major Saudi move towards Israel in the near future uh, and the main reason for that is that still for the Saudis even though they are um, they are two sets of relationships with Saudi Arabia and with the Arab states as a whole okay there's the um, 
what happens um, uh, under the table, what happens above the table, okay? Uh, under the table, there's a big and wide and deep relationship between security services and, and, and intelligence services uh, that go back long, m many, many years, okay? No one invented anything in the last two, three, five years, okay? We, we had relationship, uh, relationship security and intelligence relationship with Jordan 50 years before the peace agreement, right. okay? Um, we had uh, uh, an intelligence and security relationship with Saudi Arabia and the UAE and many other countries in the region many years before... Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu started talking about the fact that we're getting closer together and our interests are aligned more than ever, etc., etc. The problem is, and, and I just want to remind you, that in 1994, uh, 1995, after the Oslo agreements were signed, okay, many Arab countries uh, either opened offices and re representative uh, um, offices in Israel or allowed Israel to open uh, representation offices in their country. Uh, Morocco, Oman, Qatar, um, um, Mauritania. Uh, we had that, okay? We had that. Tunisia, okay? We had that. It's not... Uh, we had um, an open relationship, open relationship with Arab countries. I remember I was in Doha in 2008, with Sipi Livni, when she was foreign minister, she met with the emir in front of the cameras. She met with the foreign minister of Oman in front of the cameras. She met with, with uh, other uh, Arab foreign ministers in front of the cameras. Okay, mm -hmm. so nobody invented anything. You mm -hmm. know? What happened in the, uh, in the last few years, since 2009, by the way, is a decline in Israel's relationship with the Arab world. Because... What let's look at this relationship between Israel and Saudi Arabia, Israel, the UAE, Israel, even Jordan and Egypt. What do we uh, what do we give in this relationship? What does Israel give? Israel gives technology. Israel gives uh, water. Water. Israel gives in intelligence. Sometimes Israel even gives security. Security assistance. Okay, all of those Israel gives. Israel gives uh, diplomatic assistance with. The White House, okay, mm -hmm. um, all of that Israel. Those are the things that Israel gives, okay. What does Israel get in return, or what does Israel need in don't, return? Don't bomb us. Well, I don't think that any of those countries are <laughs> recognition. Uh, Israel needs even less than don't bomb us. Just <laughs> recognize no, us. No, yeah, Israel needs recognition. Israel needs legitimacy in the region. Okay. Okay, and do we get that? No. No, exactly. So if you look at the last few years, maybe everything that happens uh, under the table, those are the things that Israel gives, okay, is maybe getting better. But everything that has to do with legitimacy and recognition, it got worse in the last eight years. The fact that just now, um, you know, in 2007, 2008, um, um, uh, and and even at the at the beginning of 2009 2010 uh when mubarak was still was still around we had um you know visits by or meetings between israeli prime ministers and and egyptian presidents in front of the cameras and everything um 
we just celebrated with fanfare the fact that Netanyahu and Assisi met in New York uh, in a neutral place with uh, just, uh, you know, stills in pictures. In a side room. In a side somewhere. room in New York. Uh, and we did, it, it was a big deal, okay? But so this is now what we're celebrating. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, I was in Doha with C.P. Livni in front of the cameras, uh, um, with the Amir of Qatar, with Arab officials from all around the region, Uh, and it But there were just two Saudi ex-government uh, officials in a synagogue in Paris. I mean, that has to mean something. <laughs> I don't think it means anything. <laughs> no. uh, uh, I don't think it means anything. Those... This is the test. This okay. is the test. The test is whether you'll see any Saudi uh, acting official standing in front of the camera besides an Israeli official. Okay. And, and you don't see that happening. I sometimes. don't see that happening. I'm telling you, I don't see less than that happening. Okay. Everyone were, you know, made, everybody made a big thing out of the interview that uh, IDF chief of staff Eisenkot gave a Saudi, gave to a Saudi newspaper. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but this is not, uh, this is not the meaningful thing. The meaningful thing will be the day when a Saudi official will give an interview to an Israeli media outlet. Mm-hmm, okay, right. and again, I'm telling you... Have you tried to get it? Uh, uh, yeah, of course, and you get... Nothing? What do they tell you? Look, you... even from people who are very nice, and I have many contacts with many officials from the Arab world, they're very nice, they're very polite, but they tell me the same thing. Listen, it's complicated. We can't do it, maybe in the future. And then when you ask why, they say a very interesting thing. They'll say... You know, it's not that we don't like you or that we don't trust you or that, but if we'll give you an interview and it will be published, it will be exploited by our adversaries, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, the Iranians, uh, the Qataris, it will be exploited by them to show that we are traitors. Uh, traitors. Weak. Okay? Uh, yeah. And mm-hmm. it will be problematic for us to explain it in our uh, public opinion with our, with our publics. Uh, why? Because at the end of the day, for the Arab states, for Saudi Arabia, for the UAE, for Kuwait, for Bahrain, for Oman, even from, for Jordan and Egypt, it is still about, the main question is still whether, what's going on with the Palestinian issue. And it, as long as the occupation continues, as long as there's a total freeze of the peace process, as long as... Um, They don't, nobody sees any progress in the future between Israel and the Palestinians. It will be very hard and even impossible for the Arab states to, let's say, uh, come out of the cold and, 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 you know, open to Israel more publicly. So then what is our interest uh, in giving things to the Saudis if we don't get anything meaningful back from them? I think it's, it's this... Um, A, you know, it serves security. It does serve security. It, it does serve security because if, if we want stability, okay, we don't want anybody to, uh, we don't want a terrorist organization in Sinai to try and, and topple the Egyptian government, okay? So we help the Egyptians. We don't want uh, Jordan to be uh, swept by ISIS, okay? So we are helping the Jordanians because stability in Jordan is important for Israel's security, okay? But again, Uh, in all of those things, I'm not saying that Israel is not, doesn't also enjoy the benefits, but this is not the main thing we need. The main thing we need from all those Arab countries is legitimacy and recognition. And I just want to, 
to just check out you know again country that we have diplomatic diplomatic relations with jordan the jordanians we don't even have an embassy in jordan now and the last time uh, king of abdallah of jordan met with prime minister netanyahu and and took a picture with him was i think more than five years ago right so it's very tense still with them after the yes, incident yes i'm sorry not five years ago three years ago okay right. it's it's a so it's it's a very uh it was an incident in which uh a security guy in the jordanian embassy has shot in the israeli embassy israeli jordan embassy has shot jordan. A, a, a jordanian uh um a jordanian teenager that uh tried to stab him so uh, then the embassy was is no longer there yeah because they israel evacuated the diplomats for there the jordanians are refusing uh to to let them back in the country until this security guard is being will be indicted or whatever and it's not a obviously this is not a legal issue this is a political issue because the jordanians are using this incident which which again shows you the problem of recognition and legitimacy the jordanians are using this incident to keep the israeli diplomats out of the country because it's for political, for political reasons, reasons inside because, because exactly. it's popular it's popular like it so why doesn't israel maybe israel's not asking for enough why doesn't israel you know either demand more or refuse to provide what it provides take the consequences if there's a security threat there's a th- security threat and we retaliate as we should uh because uh i think that um the current government is not willing to uh Um, to pay the price in order to get the breakthrough with the Arab world and uh, it's uh, so it's easy easier to again to try and maintain some sort of a status quo you don't pay any political price and um, you know you live with what there is mm-hmm. in the end of the day BB is a very conservative in the in the sense that he will think a thousand times before he would do anything rash either going to a war or doing any step that right that's something that that you can say about him no Netanyahu is a status quo uh, politician mm-hmm. you know, he's a conservative status quo politician uh, not only on on security or on foreign policy on everything on the economy on the only issue that Netanyahu uh, is not um, um, is not keeping the status quo on is is domestic politics okay and his own political survival on those issues he's very creative and taking initiatives all the time everything that does not have to do with his political survival he's more risk averse and tends to maintain the status quo as much as he can so let's uh move on to another big uh um topic in the middle east the iran and our relations is that uh threat at all i mean we Even if we wanted to, like we did with uh, Iraq in 81, I mean, we're constantly hearing about the nuclear threat. So even if we wanted to, like in 81, we couldn't bomb Iran's nuclear reactors. It's too late to end it, the nuclear. Yeah. But we did see something like Stuxnet recently. We, might we see something like that again? Are they even posing a threat? I mean, what's the situation with Israel and Iran today? Again, this is also, I think, a very complex issue because... Um, There's a tendency by politicians to describe a situation in a very uh, in very clear colors and, and, and present Iran as this monolithic uh, entity 
that is just uh, you know black or white there's no there are no gray areas when there are many gray areas and Iran is obviously the Iranian regime is obviously not very fond of Israel and and the supreme leader of Iran and the um, revolutionary guards corps want to uh, wipe Israel off the map this is not a secret it's a fact um, at the same time um, Iran has many other problems more pressing problems than Israel okay it's in a uh, Iran is situated in a neighborhood that is also not very um, not very friendly and comfortable uh, and and at the end of the day inside Iran today there's a big fight between uh, one camp a very conservative camp that wants to maintain the current uh, route that Iran is going uh, of um, keeping it as a closed off a country, a very conservative country, and a very um, um, a re religious country. And on the other hand, there's another camp uh, which is being supported by a very, very broad and big constituency of people who are younger than 30 years old uh, that want to see changes inside the country. And you can see in the last few years, since uh, Rouhani was elected president for the first time and now for the second time things inside Iran domestically are changing it still does not have influence on foreign policy mm -hmm. okay even though I'm not sure that with a different uh, president elect uh, we would see the Iranian nuclear deal we might talk about it in a few minutes but domestically within Iran there are changes okay just look at the at the elections on the elections to the um, to the Iranian parliament okay the majlis um, the number of people who are from the more let's say moderate camp that were elected okay all over the country uh, so people want to see changes okay mm -hmm. so sometimes we see we look at Iran all the time through the lens of the nuclear program for of or in of Iran's support to uh, proxies and terror groups which is something we need to look at but we also need to look at what's going on inside Iran okay because it's not a it's a complex country it's not North Korea people say, say it's North Korea no it's not North Korea Iran has a, a very uh, uh, Iran has many uh, elements within the society that are being dealt with in a democratic way okay it's not a democracy but there are elements of democracy okay the elections to the parliament the elections to the president so it's not that everyone can just go and and uh, and um, and say that he wants to uh, run for elections it's not again it's not a democracy but it's also not north korea mm -hmm. okay in north korea if you if you say the smallest bit of criticism against uh, kim jong un you're in the you, labor camps you're, and, uh, yeah in the labor camps this is a, for you know if you, if you get a, 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 yeah. on a good day on a bad day you're being executed with a anti-aircraft uh, cannon okay um but in Iran, wow. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I did not see that one coming. Oh yeah, yeah. But in Iran, you're there's there's a big. Uh, in Iran, uh, they hang you. No, no, it's, it's not that, much more humane. I don't. Again, it's it's not that they don't hang people in Iran, but it's not that this is the only thing that happens in Iran. Just if you look at the Iranian press, you see how much criticism there is there is in the Iranian press on the government. 
It's also a country of many minorities. and Yes, exactly. Are there any behind the scenes like you described between Israel and Saudi Arabia and Israel and Jordan before the peace agreement? Are there any behind the scenes bilateral talks between Israel and Iran that are happening now? You know, I asked this question to many, many people. Uh, until now, I didn't find any bit of, of evidence that there are such uh, behind the scenes talks between Israel and Iran. That this is like the big taboo and the big no-no. Do you believe that there is? I again, I have no evidence. I have no evidence, so I have no reason to believe that there are contacts between Israel and Iran, direct contacts. Um, so but are again, they, are there a threat to us? Yeah, they are a threat. Okay, but they are a threat. They're not a direct threat. Okay, because at least in the next decade, Iran will not be if if the nuclear deal is implemented, Iran will not be able to build a nuclear weapon. Yeah, okay. but does the nuclear deal hold any actual uh, uh, implications? I mean, isn't it just... I mean, we've, we've seen before how Iran has flaunted, you know, it's it completely disregarded the, the uh, requirements of, of deals and how it doesn't let the, the UN's watchdogs inside Iran to check that they're actually meeting the, uh, the requirement. I mean, also, it doesn't seem like it actually cares... If I may add something, that Obama was also very proud of the uh, deal to get out the chemical weapons from Syria. And just like a week or two weeks ago, or a month ago, I don't remember, we saw another uh, chemical attack uh, in Sy- Syria, at least I read about it. So obviously that, that deal um, didn't work out that well. So people are still very doubtful and scared, I guess, here in Israel from the Iranian nuclear threat, rightfully so. So first, let's you ask about the um, chemical weapons deal with Syria. Syria removed, and no one is denying it, removed 95 to 97 percent of its chemical weapons out of the country. Okay, does it mean that Syria does not have any more chemical weapons? No, it does not. It still has uh, chemical weapons, but it is not, you know, Syria used to be a used to have a capability to flood Israel with with chemical weapons for months if it wanted to just rain chemical weapons on Israel, okay? It doesn't have this capability anymore. It's a fact, okay? Does it mean it doesn't have chemical weapons to use in a certain place, in a certain uh, battle in a city uh, against the rebels? Yes, it does have uh, this capability, but uh, it's, it's a totally different situation, okay? It's much better than it used to be. Same thing with Iran. Does it mean that there's no Iranian nuclear program anymore? No, it does not. It means that there are limitations on the Iranian nuclear program for at least another 10 years. Okay? It's nine mean, years by now, no? What, nine years. So uh, what will happen in nine years? Nine years is not that long of a time. It's not that long of a time, but it's not that short of a time. Okay? Would you rather have n- zero years? Okay? Because if, 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 if without a nuclear deal, uh, in 2015, we, uh, we would find ourselves in a situation where there's, there's no deal, there's nothing. We need to, we need to deal with the Iranian pro- nuclear program now, okay? Mm-hmm. We had the chance and we, we, didn't, we, we chose not to do anything. No, exactly. You know, Prime Minister Netanyahu threatened to bomb the Iranian nuclear uh, facilities Billions for, for of years. Shekels Billions were of shekels spent. were spent on training and on preparations. He could yeah, have done it in 2009. He didn't. 
could have you can't done even it. get to them with with bomb. I mean, right? Most many of the facilities. Well, we are could deep. in 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012. We could have done it, uh, and Netanyahu chose not to give the order. So that's a fact. Yes, uh, we had our chance. That's, we had that's our chance. For sure. We didn't want to use it. Okay, you can argue if it was a good decision, bad decision, but it's a fact that we had a chance. We didn't want to do it. Uh, so uh, now we're counting on uh, Netanyahu was counting on the U.S. to go to war with Iran. I can understand why it would have been more convenient for us. Of course, but I can understand why an American president doesn't want to go to war in in, in the Middle so, East again. So does that mean that Bibi is not? I mean, for all his talk about you know uh, standing by the uh, uh, the values of the Likud and the and the right wing in Israel, does that mean he's not abiding by the Begin doctrine? He let another country obtain. Uh, you know, means to... Well, first, Iran still does not have a nuclear bomb. Okay? Yeah, but he missed the opportunity to... To, to prevent it. Uh, yes, I, you know, that's, again, that's a fact. Yeah. Okay, and so now he's trying to stop it by other means. Okay, I wish him luck because nobody wants Iran to have a nuclear weapon. But the fact is that the nuclear deal gave Israel another 10 years to get ready, okay, to get ready to the day after the deal. To get okay. ready to our war with Iran, basically. <laughs> Again, I hope that it will not happen. But if, if there is a war with Iran, I think it's better to have it 10 years from now than now. Right, and, and, right. You know, if you Why can... do today what you can do tomorrow? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, just think that, I just think that if you can... Uh, the number one goal of any leader is to prevent the war. Okay? Yeah. And if you can delay the war, okay... Uh, and say, okay, if we need to have it, let's delay it in 10 years. So let's see what happens, okay? We can always get ready in a better way, and maybe something changes in those 10 years. Maybe not, okay? But maybe it does. Uh, um, Time is also a resource. Yes, in- yes. But I'm not sure that that's always true. I mean, you know, yeah, when Chamberlain tried, exactly, to, yeah, of course. Tried, to, tried to placate Hitler, it wasn't exactly and the Russia. best. Uh, and Russia, it wasn't exactly the best. Uh, I don't, I, I don't think that anyone Strategy. I don't think that anyone in Israel is trying to uh, uh, kiss up to the Iranians okay it's not the case uh, but I just think that let me ask you uh, uh, another thing um, if in 1939 someone would tell you you know what we can stall the Nazis for 10 years okay and and prevent them from starting to occupy Poland and the entire Europe and start the Second World War. You don't think it would it was worth taking such a deal? I think so because the US and the UK and other countries in the West were totally not ready to uh, uh, to fight the Nazis and this is why the Nazis uh, you know won for many many years. Right. Okay. Um, so I just think if you have uh, the opportunity. Okay, to at least contain a crisis from blowing up, I think it's better than just letting it blow up and say, "Ah, oh, okay, we'll deal with it." Barack, uh, before we go, you worked in Haaret for so long, and you were very known there for your scoops. So I was wondering, what's the scoop, your biggest one or the one you're most proud of in your ears? Well, you know, I love all my children. Uh, <laughs> the one that when you got, you were like, holy shit. Um, wow, that's a good question. I, I think 
the problem is that you always remember uh, the ones who you, you that you are chronologically the closest ones yeah it's uh, like spouses yeah yeah <laughs> uh, but i think i i think <laughs> that i can easily say that one of my biggest stories uh maybe the biggest one but you know maybe not the biggest one but but one of the biggest is was a story about the Aqaba secret Aqaba summit um which is again a story i published in february uh so it's this february the, the yeah february just nine months ago um the story about the secret Aqaba summit um between prime minister netanyahu secretary of state kerry uh king of jordan abdallah and president of egypt sisi uh which was something that was kept secret for a year and i exposed it in 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 haaretz i think it's the it's certainly the biggest uh, my biggest story in the last year for sure mm-hmm. um but again there are many many other stories you know sometime uh what stays is not the story that was the biggest sometimes the small stories are the ones that make a difference okay because mm-hmm. you expose the akaba summit okay that's great you you tell people you, you tell your readers something they did not know okay which is a big value in journalism to tell your readers something they did not know until today okay but there are also small stories that create change okay that help someone uh those stories are which are which maybe don't get the big follow-ups around the world and uh, as the the akaba story got follow-ups all you know all around the world it was a huge story people talked about it for weeks okay but again there are sometimes the small stories that you know helped someone that you publish something and it you help to um uh to fix a flaw for example um You know I um, let me think um, I'm, it's you know it's hard to say from the top of my head but um, I'll give you an example a story about um, the um, um, the former uh, head of the of the new media, Um, a, a unit in the prime minister's office okay uh-huh. who used to you know write this those ugly posts on his facebook page uh and he was appointed to be the new media chief okay uh and he he wrote those posts against you know blaming the japanese for getting nuked in world war Two, and you know all sorts of of the and i said is this the guy that in one week it's going to be the Uh, chief of the new media unit of the Israeli government and you know run Barat no no it wasn't run Barat no? it was Danny Seaman ah, okay. Barat used it's was, another it's another story it's <laughs> yeah. a very similar one <laughs> okay. but and you know what I'm glad that because of that story people say oh you know he didn't get the job because of you I'm glad he didn't get the job because I think he would make a lot of damages to uh, Israel's image around the world and uh, mm. so again this is a small story but but one that I think made a difference before we go we have Two collaborations. One is with the Jewish Journal of Greater Los Angeles. It's a Jewish newspaper and a website, and they report about uh, stories uh, to uh, 
English-speaking Jewry around the world. And the second is Secret Tel Aviv, which I'm sure you've heard of. It's a hundred, or maybe not. It's a hundred and seventy thousand members group on Facebook um, for in English. Uh, mainly for Olim or uh, anybody really in Israel for, with recommendations for restaurants, Discussions. events, just funny memes yeah. with Keanu Reeves. And you are on Twitter, right? Yes, That's the, the main place to yes, get... Yes, I am. And I'm tweeting in English too. In English, yes. So Barak Ravid on Twitter. Yeah. Follow him, guys. Links, yes. Yeah. And now you're in Channel 10, so you're not translated to English anymore. But I still tweet in English. And yes. Channel 10, it's something that you might uh, want to check out. Every day between 9 p.m. and 10 p.m., Channel 10 releases on its social media, uh, both on Twitter and on Facebook, a, a short, video, short video segment of three minutes of the main headlines from the main news show in English. Oh, really? Yeah, so you should Amazing. check it out. Okay, we'll link to that too. Yeah. Barak, thank you so much for coming. It was really thank fascinating. You. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks. Bye.